Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. This is a place where we talk about and you hear about issues that are hard to talk about in the culture that are often misunderstood in the culture that carry a lot of shame. And we're here to uh, help people recover and find healing and hope. And to that end, I've invited a, a colleague and a, and a really respected and admired one, uh, Dr. Don Hilton. And thank you, Dr. Hilton, for joining us. It's wonderful to, to be with you today, Rob. I appreciate it so much. And uh, I want to read Dr. Hilton's bio, which is just impresses the heck out of me, so I'm sure it will you. Dr. Hilton is an adjunct associate professor of neurosurgery at the University of Texas Health Center at San Antonio, where he is, he is director of the Spine Fellowship and director of neurosurgical training at the Methodist Hospital Rotation. Uh, Dr. Hilton is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Association of Neuro neurological surgeons. His research and publishing interests have included traumatic brain injury, minimally invasive surgery, and all neural mechanisms of addiction. Um, Dr. Hilton has, has authored a whole bunch of peer-reviewed articles and journal articles and papers. Most recently, he did a chapter on addiction, on a chapter on sexual addiction, I should say, for the Oxford University Press, Oxford University Press that put out the neurobiology of addiction. And if you want to understand how the brain works in relationship to addiction, whether it's drugs and alcohol or a behavior, I would pick up the neurobiology of addiction and um, and you'll probably get those answers. Dr. Hilton also serves on the board of directors of the Washington, D.C.-based National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Um, again, Dr. Hilton, I'm so grateful to have you here. Um, let's talk. I know a lot of your uh, focus in the work has been most recently on pornography and the effect of pornography in the brain. And in, in this whole discussion that our culture is having uh, still on whether sex or sexual behavior or sexual content can be addictive. And I just want you to talk a little bit about maybe what drew you to this and what keeps you in it, because I'm sure with your record and your history, there's a lot of things you could be looking at, but you're studying this. Uh, probably a decade ago, I was in Australia with uh, with a dear friend who's a scientist there. I'd been invited to lecture on minimally invasive spinal surgery. And this dear friend um, is a world-renowned scientist on natural instinctive brain craving. What what makes our brain crave things that help us survive? And, and the question came up in, in a model that they were using there. They were looking at certain engines of desire in the brains of 
it was an animal model, but what made these animals crave things that helped them survive? And in looking at that, I raised the question, what about addiction? Is there a relation between these genes that code for proteins that drive desire, natural desire that help us survive, and the same genes that drive addiction desire? Is there a relationship between those? So a a research project kind of grew out of those initial discussions, and I was privileged to be a co-author on a paper published a number of years ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. What we found was that the same DNA gene sets that cause this particular animal, animal model to desire, in this case, salt when they're depleted of salt, also were the same DNA sets that code or that, that drive desire in addiction. And that had not been shown. So that kind of opened my interest in natural addiction. And I think as far as sex and pornography, I don't think there's a more applicable subject in terms of us wanting to pick something that impacts all of us. We're all individuals. We're all humans. None of us are islands. We all need to connect emotionally to other people. And I've come to believe that pornography actually kind of fights that. It it actually draws people more into themselves and away from other people. And and it can become, uh, as a powerful reward, as any powerful reward can become, addictive. So let me ask you, uh, let me let the scientist in me rise to the surface a little bit and and throw something at you. And, and let me ask you this, although we will get back to much more about addiction in a second, but what if it is our evolutionary imperative to go through this? In other words, we've created porn uh, or even uh, readily accessible high fat, high calorie, low nutrition food. You know, um, we've created these highly stimulating, uh, highly emotionally satisfying in the moment experiences that don't have a lot of after effect that's lingering, that's positive. Um, what if those people who get so drawn to the porn that they don't reproduce or they don't build relationships or maybe that's what, what if that's just evolution? I mean, what if we are just facing in real time uh, our evolutionary decision to mate or not mate? And what if this is really a part of a grander plan in that sense that, you know, man has made machines, we've made medicines, all of that. And now um, we are at the mercy of natural selection in terms of how we survive and how our race survives in relationship to these things that we've created. I think you're exactly right. And I think some of us, meaning humans, will decide to pursue that, that path and, and pursue sensation over emotion and connection. And I think a, a large segment of, of DNA, so to speak, will do that. I think others will probably choose otherwise and decide that our cortex, which has evolved to not only feel sensation, feel physical sensation, but also feel emotionally to not only value thrills, but also, uh, more importantly, value connection. I think that my personal feeling is that we will evolve that direction and we will find out that as humans with an emotional capability beyond other species, that we will in the end choose that. That's that's what I believe. So here's a thought for you about that, and I, I won't drag this into the mud, but I'm already working with people who have Asperger's or on the spectrum, people who are pathologically shy, people who 
um, have social phobias and challenges in building relationship. And these people have traditionally come to therapy because they wanted to have sex with people. They wanted to have relationships with people. They wanted to be like everyone else. And they would struggle in therapy to get beyond their fears and their innate challenges to, to get to a point where they could be dating or be sexual or be in a relationship. And it occurs to me that, you know, with what we have now in terms of porn and certainly with what's coming with VR, that maybe these people are not going to come see me or other therapists anymore. Maybe they're going to be satisfied enough with their virtual experiences that they're not going to struggle with their own vulnerabilities. They're just going to be satisfied with what they get. And if that's the case, then they may not reproduce. I mean, we may be seeing natural selection in in process is, is sort of a, just the theme of uh, what to bring to you. Yeah, I think, I think that's a valid point, Rob. I think that VR is going to change things. I think porn in 10 to 15 years, particularly with teledildonics and haptically filmed porn, is going to become a much more interactive experience rather than the even spectator sport that it is today. And I think that will, that it, this is such powerful technology that I think it will have an evolutionary wave or ripple into our species. I agree with you. I wanted to say something to you about that too, um, specifically that I, I've done some VR because I, um, I did a, a piece, a, a television documentary for Vice, and they were doing it on VR sex. And I had the opportunity to talk to a VR cam girl, as they call it, or a sex worker. And um, I was on VR, and I, I have to say that talking to her in virtual reality, I had feelings for her. I had feelings about her. I had feelings about her looking at me. I had, it was a completely different experience than watching a screen. And what made it different is I felt you, I was emotionally connected to her. That piece that you're talking about that is missing from, let's say, the porn we look at today, or even our you know, FaceTime on, on computers, that deep emotional sense of another person, I thought carried through with VR. And I have to say, it terrified me. I remember those guys I used to work with who would spend three hours or three days doing phone sex for thousands of dollars just to get some woman to validate them. And they would run up a $5,000 bill and then pay it off and run up another one just to get a woman to say that she wanted him or he was. And when they're in these experiences with that real person whose scheme seems and feels like they're right next to them, and as you said, they're using cyber dildonics to uh, be sexual with them long distance, I'm thinking that there's a new format coming that will that is going to blend not only the visual and the auditory, but also blend the emotional piece. And isn't that when the problem's going to get worse? I think it will. And, you know, Rob, there are people, just as you're saying, that will welcome that and will say, what's wrong with it? I mean, uh, some people really can't connect emotionally well to others. So at least in their little world, perhaps they'll be able to find some kind of fulfillment in that. I would argue still that we, at least to this point, we have evolved to connect to each other. That's really where, where we are today. And I believe in human connection and emotion. I think you know, when when you get sick, at least uh, at least now, when when I have patients that are have a terminal diagnosis, or I have to go to the ICU on someone with a, a spine problem, critical injury, and they're acutely paralyzed and they're they're absorbing that information. It's so helpful to have a human being hold their hand and be at their side and look them in the eye. I don't know if a screen's going to do that for some time. And what do you see it doing now? Um, in the various iterations and challenges that w we see people having, what is the greatest challenge you see porn presenting for those people who have a problem with it? 
is it isolation or is it lack of relationship building or is it they're not thriving or what what do you what are you seeing or hearing about i think you've just said that rob i think again i go back to to cicero and him saying that emotion is really where it's at as human beings we are designed to connect to each other to experience that that emotional bonding and all of us are and i think that perhaps that's that's what porn strikes at the most deeply is the ability to connect emotionally to another human being not just physically but physically and emotionally to have a real human connection it imitates that yeah when you say it it does that the most deeply it's, to me it's that's like saying chocolate chip cookies really give you that feeling if you eat the whole bag of having had a dinner but in fact it's done very little to to uh, support your nutrition so in a way, looking at porn, it might give you, I, I'm going to ask you, use, use your words with that metaphor. So what is the porn in relationship to the cookies? <laughs> How does that work? What are, are they not getting a meal? Is that, or not even interested in a meal? Is that kind of what you're, or you can not play with my metaphor if you don't like. No, I think there's, there's validity to it, Rob. I think it's not, and I, but I think if we want to carry that metaphor out a little bit, I think that yes, porn is a form of fast food sex in the sense that it's, it's not emotional, but you know, and some would say that a little porn then is okay, just as it's okay to have some fast food. And, and again, we're not looking at this moralistically. Let's keep porn, looking at it in the segment of biological, emotionally connecting creatures. How does porn fit in? Well, I would argue that porn today, the product that's, that's out there, that's presented, that, present, that, that has actually evolved, to use the, the word, to continue that evolved word, to survive financially, according to Anna Bridges, is a, um, an angry, uh, very patriarchal, misogynistic, male-centered, uh, in many cases, product. And it's really, I think, taking us away from that human connection. I don't think that the porn that's out there, uh, what Anna Bridges said, 90% of the scenes show aggression towards women. And, and so I think that, just talking about heterosexual porn now, just I think that we can do better. I think that we're really about connection and emotion. I think the Me Too discussion we're having now is not well served by, and we should embrace the Me Too. We should embrace women coming forward. But at the same time, we have a very misogynistic, patriarchal in a dark sense product uh, that is presented by mainly one company. Uh, MindGeek, of course, controls most of – it's an industry. It's a company that controls almost all of the porn on the internet now. And so if we put that together, I don't think that's a good recipe for what porn is, for the product that people access when they go on. I don't think it's about human connection, human love. I, I guess I'm thinking of alcohol, um, you know, and, and I'm obviously, well, not obviously, but I, I try very hard to not take any kind of stance on right or wrong or good or bad, but just how does it affect the individual? And so, you know, what I see with porn is that most people are fine. Uh, they may use it occasionally. Uh, they have a breakup or they're in adolescent or late adolescence and they haven't started dating. Or, I mean, I see a lot of people and hear about lots of people enjoying porn that is not problematic for them. And then there are the people who get really, really stuck. 
And so in a way, I look at it like alcohol, like, you know, alcohol has been with us since biblical times, but not before. Alcohol is useful for social bonding. It's, so, it's useful for relaxation and, and relationship building. But for some people, alcohol is deadly. And it's only a very few, you know, it's only a small percentage, but those people can't use the way everyone else can. They just can't. But I think you're saying something else, which is that it isn't just a matter of addiction or someone being addicted to the porn and then everyone else is pretty much okay looking at it. You're saying that there's a lot more going on than that. Yeah, I think that the product itself, there's a problem with the product. The Grisden paper that came out of, uh, out of New York and LA looking by the, in the Journal of Public uh, of Urban Health looked at some of the, um, the physical and emotional and mental health risks that are associated with primarily female performers in the product that we have today. And it's pretty dismal. As a surgeon, I'm very interested in informed consent. And a friend of mine provided me with an informed consent contract that's used in the industry from a few years ago. And it's interesting. It talks about STDs, but there's nothing about, uh, for instance, you know, they're, they're testing for HIV for hepatitis, but what about chlamydia? Chlamydia is almost universal. Chlamydia particularly is almost asymptomatic in many, except that it causes micro-scarring in the fallopian tubes. So many of these young girls are going to be infertile or at least have fertility problems and never even know it. And what they'll say, and this paper points that out, is, is they'll say, well, just it's treatable with antibiotics, so just stay on antibiotics. And as a physician, I step back and say, oh, so that's your answer for this public health problem is to create superbugs by staying on antibiotics. I mean, it's just, it's, it's insane that they will try to justify that. So I really think that these female performers do not, are not fully informed in terms of the consent, in terms of the risks, not just the, the STDs they're exposed to, but also violence on set, um, drugs. I mean, the, the, the use of drugs and alcohol um, compulsively and addictively is quite high. In the, and so I think the product itself, if that's the cost to produce this product, even that some people use, maybe, as you say, to, to no great disadvantage for them, what about the cost of producing it? I mean, that ended, we've had five recent porn performers, females die just recently. It, it's been in the press. I think we've all seen that. And I think that's just uh, kind of an anecdotal affirmation of the Grusden paper that called out the porn industry on its public health issues. Well, I, I will. I, I certainly, you know, just as the little addiction person that I am, will say that it, it's incredibly frustrating to me that I can walk into any casino in the United States or go into any gambling site. And there will be just this little thing on there that says, if you think you have a problem with gambling, or if I go in the casino, if I go to cash in my chips, there'll be a pamphlet. If you have a problem with gambling, in other words, there's implied, there is implied when I walk into a casino that there's a potential relationship for me and this experience to be problematic. And even though it is, you know, really just a glancing mention, at least it exists. There are no porn sites, no webcam sites, no hookup apps that ever mention that for some people, this could be really problematic. Um, and if you think you might have a problem, click here, not even the littlest dot. And um, of course, that's because gambling casinos are legislated to have to uh, inform the public that there can be problems, just like alcohol bottles say, you know, if you're pregnant or blah, 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 don't drink. And But we don't have anything like that for porn. So is that kind of why it, it, it falls into the realm of public health? I think that's certainly one reason. And it's interesting to me that you have these 
young, fe- primarily female performers uh, in terms of the harm, at least going from the Grusden paper and others. And the Humane Society rightly, uh, when animals are used in making films, the American Humane Society rightly says no animal was harmed in the making of this film. And yet, can we say that with longitudinal studies that no human was harmed emotionally or physically? What about long-term longitudinal studies in the making of this pornography film? And we don't have that. And as always, I'm pretty certain of this, it will be the more vulnerable, the more emotionally challenged, the person with trauma who is going to end up in the sex industry or uh, or, or using it in, a, in an addictive way. In other words, it's going to be the most troubled people, the most vulnerable people who are going to be in this situation. Exactly. With no one to protect. That's exactly true. That's what happens here. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. Can we talk about, I, I have so much I want to ask you, and I only have this short period of time, but you are the man as far as I'm concerned in this area. What what are your thoughts and feelings and feedback around everything to do with you know, young adults in porn? Um, and let me frame that question for you. You know, there is a, a cadre of professionals out there who are just anti-porn, period. It's bad no matter what. And I get that. And whatever perspective they're coming from, that's fine. Um, I'm not here to agree or disagree. Um, but there are other folks who are more concerned about the effect on uh, relation. Well, everything from the inability to gain an erection for a young man, you know, a porn-induced erectile dysfunction, to how men and women tend to much more greatly objectify people in real life if they've been looking at a lot of porn and objectifying them. In other words, their their frame around approaching and engaging with people changes. We have developmental changes where. I'm seeing young people who have had a lot of sex, whether hookups or looked at porn, but they have no idea how to go on a date or ask someone out or hold someone's hand. So we have a variety of issues that have come up, including porn addiction. How do you look at all this in terms of young people? And how do we, because I don't know any 17-year-old that's going to put down his porn unless, you know, I, I just don't. <laughs> um, uh, highly unlikely. So, uh, I mean, how do we begin to get wrap our hands around it without becoming moralistic? I like what England's doing. I don't think anyone can accuse England of making a porn difficult for youth to access of being moralistic in their approach. It's certainly a very secular societal approach that they're taking, and I think an appropriate one. In well, of course, in in April, uh, the four ISP providers in Great Britain um, have agreed to to have an opt in mechanism where. Individuals under 18 years old cannot access pornography, and they've worked on that uh, for the la- for a couple of years. Uh, all identities are protected, um, and they they're confident that this that uh, individuals will not be traceable in terms of verifying that they're 18 or older for adults that use porn. But it will protect minors, and so I applaud that. I think MindGeeked even came in and, and, and worked with them. I don't, I'm, I'm just saying that a hearsay, but that's what I've heard. I really think we can do that in this country. I think 
porn is certainly debated as as we will. I don't know anyone that would argue that it's a great sex education tool for minors and for children. I don't know anyone that would argue that that's the case. And so I think certainly we could all agree that we could follow the British model and come up with a similar system. I know we have more ISP providers in the States, of course, than in England. Come up with a model that would protect our minors. At least do that. So being devil's advocate, as I tend to be, and and, and really this is not necessarily where I'm coming from, but I want to ask the question. Um, In fact, where I'm coming from, it doesn't matter, but I'll ask the question. I have a very good friend who has a I guess a 16-year-old son, he's doing great in school, he's going to go to a good college, um, he's got friends, he's on the teams, he's you know just really smart and engaging and nice to his mom, which is not always the case with 16-year-old boys. And, um, and his mom said to me recently, oh, I know he's looking at porn a couple of times a week, but you know, boys do that and it's no big deal. And that's where she comes from around it. I, I can agree, I can disagree, you know, whatever my opinion on is, doesn't matter. But I think there are parents out there who say, you know, I mean, I was looking at magazines when I was 16 or, you know, my my uh, my uncle was looking at videos in his youth. You know, what is really the big deal if once a kid is 17 or 18, what, why, why would we want to restrict their access to that? I understand, and I think everyone would understand, certainly prepubescent access and certainly even access from someone as young as 14 or 15. But once you get towards 17, 18, what is the, what would you say to my, what would you say to my friend as a mom um, about the fact that she just really isn't that concerned about it as long as it doesn't affect his schoolwork, his relationships, and, and she doesn't see him doing it every day? I mean, what would you say to her? I, I would say, do you, so uh, number one, let's go back to what you think porn is. And she would say, well, you know, it's a 1953 Marilyn Monroe centerfold that Hugh Hefner first put out in Playboy. And I say, no, <laughs> it's not that. So that's the first thing I would say is that if we're going to say that it's okay, let's talk about what it is. And uh, mind geek scenes, you know, it's usually for the heterosexual porn that's out there. It's going to be oral, anal, and vaginal penetration. And, and of course, uh, over half of the scenes uh, that Anna Bridges talked about in her paper uh, used derogatory names. Uh, and the woman would generally, when there was hair pulling or slapping, act with her facial expression, according to Anna Bridges, as if she was enjoying it. So it was showing pleasure with male domination in an aggressive and demeaning way. And so I would say, so that's the typical normal porn. 80%, 90% of the scenes showed that. So is that really what, that's that's the product that 17-year-old Johnny's looking at. Is that really what we want him to think sex is? It reminds me of what Naomi Wolf said in New York Magazine. She said, today, real naked women are just bad porn. And I think there's some truth to that. I, I think because the 17, her 17 or 18-year-old Johnny is going to look at a woman as this series of orifices to penetrate and never really get to the question of whether or not there's a personality there. There's a human being there that may have her own feelings, her own desire for real sexual pleasure in an emotional relationship. Does that exist? Or is this woman just there to use? And so that's what I would tell the woman, to really consider that question before she sells off on, on Johnny using that as his education device. And, you know, it's interesting that you talk about this, Dr. Hilton, because it surprises me, and it shouldn't, how little people really know about sexual environments and sexual situations that, that some of us walk into routinely. 
Uh, I think there was a big article in, or someone wrote uh, on one of my listservs recently about that a wife knew her husband got lap dances and that was no big deal because she didn't really know what a lap dance was. And once she realized that there was physical contact, that there was orgasm, that there were all kinds of things going on, she thought a lap dance was, you know, sort of a woman dancing in front of a man and maybe, you know, fanning his lap with her hand. And once she realized what it was, she was extremely upset about her husband doing this. So, you know, but when he said, oh, I go to lap dance occasionally, it didn't really bother her. So maybe what you're saying is we don't really have a, a fully fleshed out, articulated uh, understanding of what porn, what, our, what, what all of us are seeing, certainly what our kids are seeing in the culture. But here's my challenge, and here's my challenge as a therapist and as a professional, and and uh, I'd love your feedback on this, although it is as far from you, the neurosciences could be. Um, I have some great videos. They're actually some of them done, produced in England, where they talk about the difference between real sex and porn. And they're done with vegetables. For, you know, that's how they do it. So they'll show you a really big zucchini and they'll say, you know, in, in porn, male genitalia looks like this, but in reality, and then they'll trim the zucchini down to size. Most men are like this. And so they go through using vegetables and fruit, the differences between what real sex is or what real people go through and what porn is. And I did a training for about, I don't know, 300 counselors and uh, sup uh, educational support people and I, uh, for high school. And I said to them, look, you know, you have 17 and 18 year olds. Could you show them like this, something like this to help them understand the differences between what they're looking at and what reality is? It would probably be helpful for their sex education. And they said to a one, absolutely not. No parent would allow me to show that. And we could never get away with it in school. And I said, but they're just showing vegetables. <laughs> and they said, well, we don't talk about things like porn to high school students. And I thought, but don't you realize that every one of them is going home and looking at massive amount of incredibly explicit material that is so far beyond these vegetables that we're talking about? How do we, this seems to me to be the problem is that, I mean, I, I want to say this to you, only 20 states in America offer sex education as a standard to their high school students. And out of those 20 states, 12 require a parental permission for a child to go through sex education. So, you know, I, I, what I struggle with is yes, porn is readily available and problematic and teaching kids things they don't need to learn. And, but the alternatives aren't available either because our culture seems caught up in this war that we are losing with our children because they're watching all this stuff while we're arguing about how to talk to them about it. Yeah, I, I do think that we've been very constrained and constricted about talking about sex. And I think you're right. It has left a hole and a gap which porn has filled. I, I think that's a valid point, Rob. And I do think we need to, uh, certainly now, no, no parent can sit back and say that mm, sexuality isn't really an appropriate topic now, not with porn having very successfully filled that void. I think it's time to have a, a much more open and public discussion about human sexuality with porn being part of that and with authentic human relationships of valid connection being part of that as well. I really appreciate that. I, I would love to see that happen. I think that's more likely to happen in Norway or Denmark or even England than it is in the States. Um, I've worked in human sexuality for almost 30 years in this country. And unfortunately, the divides and the morality and all of the issues that come up and all the stuff that comes up, especially right now, when you try to talk about any issue that touches on morality or ethics or any of those things, it's really impossible to get any kind of unified discussion going. And I will say this to you, the most important thing to me, and if I can't say this here, I will say it here and again elsewhere, is that parents need to talk to their kids about sex. And there is just no question that 
we, we, the school, some uh, do teach about the body parts and some diseases, but if you want to learn anything about intimacy, relationship, sexuality, intimate sexuality, that really is a parent's required job now to teach that. And if they don't know how, are, there are books to teach them, right? I think there are books about how to talk to your kid about porn at any age and all that stuff is available. There really isn't any excuse for a parent not to be doing that. In fact, it's probably their responsibility to do it. I completely agree with that, Rob. So let me do your, a little um, quick uh, winner round here or fast round. Um, I wanted to ask you for the sake of the person who's struggling with porn who might be listening because they think they're a sex addict or a porn addict. You know, what would you say to them? Maybe a few things to make them feel like they're not a bad person and to give them some hope and, and maybe even any direction you might give for beginning to make some changes. I think shame um, and Brene Brown's work has, has really brought this to the forefront. But I think shame is so destructive when we, when we struggle with anything. And, uh, and, and let's take porn for an example. We struggle with porn, say, then to internalize that and make, instead of a person who is struggling with a boundary that we would like to, we would like to take sex and fit it into a part of our life that helps us and is a positive thing for us. And instead, uh, in this context, say porn, it has become for some a, uh, a dominant force and a, a negative force in their life. I think that as we can step back from that and say, the sh- shame means I am bad and shame is a lie. I am not bad. I am not broken as a person. I have a problem um, that I would like to, to get help with, to work on. But this is a problem. This isn't me. And if a person can do that and step back and say, why is it that I struggle? And again, let's take porn for an example with someone that may be uh, watching porn an inordinate amount or looking at a genre that they really feel they shouldn't be looking at and they can't seem to stop disturbing to them and they can't seem to pull back from that. And, And it's affecting their sleep. It's affecting their work. It's affecting their relationships. And yet they can't stop and they try on their own and they can't stop. And it seems to be escalating. It's taking up more of their time and affecting their life in more profound ways. Then rather than step back and say, I just, I must be a worthless and bad person. Step back and say, what if this is a problem with my wanting apparatus in my brain? The part of my brain that causes me to want something, what if that has been changed or skewed and and therefore, and I, I, I would opine that for some, it has, and we call that addiction. For some, uh, not everyone that uses porn is addicted to porn, but of course, but for some, that it can become an addiction. And so if a person can learn porn, learn porn addiction or alcohol addiction or any addiction, then recovery is a learning process where we come back to wholeness, where the, a reward that is a powerful can become a, a wonderful garnish to life instead of the main course where it's constantly on the forefront and it's essentially our master. We have to live our lives around this one desire. It's, it's fascinating to hear you, Dr. Don Hilton, um, because I just list, could listen to you forever talk about this and I hope that you'll come back. 
Folks, this is Dr. Don Hilton, an adjunct uh, associate professor of neurosurgery at the University of Texas Health Center in San Antonio. And really, has uh, Don, Dr. Hilton has been at the forefront of looking at the neurobiology of addiction and reducing the shame and stigma that comes with addiction by helping us understand that it's a physical problem playing out in behavioral ways and and uh a learned problem at that that can be unlearned or relearned and we can be different people so you bring us hope dr hilton i thank you for that and um i look forward to more conversations in the future thank you for your time and i hope people look up your work and find out more about what you're doing it's really important absolutely good to be with you rob my pleasure thank you dr hilton Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.